We had a homelessness and housing crisis before COVID-19. It's going on even as we speak now, and it may be substantially worse afterward. Uh, and so we have to be able to multitask and make sure that we don't just focus um, uh, on the public health response and the economic response, but that we continue to make progress on housing and homelessness issues. Welcome to the Property Management Brainstorm Show with Bob Preston. Bob is the president, owner, and broker of North County Property Group, the fastest growing and top-ranked property management company in North County, San Diego. This podcast is for property owners and investors who are considering hiring a professional property management company to manage their property assets. You'll hear from leading professionals on the best practices surrounding the San Diego rental market, what's involved in successfully renting your property, and how to make sure your property is managed correctly. Now, here is your host, Bob Preston. Welcome, brainstormers, to the Property Management Brainstorm Show. I'm Bob Preston, your host, broadcasting from our studio at North County Property Group in Del Mar, California. If you're new here, please subscribe so you have ongoing access to all of our great episodes. And if you like what you hear, please pay it forward with a positive review. In the state of California and many cities throughout the country, including right here in San Diego, a housing crisis has emerged in which many citizens have become homeless or live in substandard housing. Simply put, housing that people can afford may now be more out of reach than ever. In the state of California, one person who has vowed to make progress on California's housing crisis and further advocated for increased investment and innovative solutions to housing and homelessness is California State Assemblymember Todd Gloria. Assemblymember Gloria is also running for the mayor of San Diego, which will be on the ballot in November of this year. Todd, welcome to Property Management Brainstorm. Thank you, Bob. Thanks for having me. You bet. To start things off in preparing for today's podcast, I visited your website and I've studied your bio. Super impressive and inspiring story. It would be so wonderful if you could tell us about yourself and your journey, if you will, toward your career in both San Diego and state of California politics. Sure. I'm happy to. Um, you know, I'd like to tell people I'm a third generation San Diegan. Um, I'm the proud son of a maid and a gardener um, who raised my brother and I to believe that if you care about something, you're supposed to leave it better than you found it. Uh, it turns out that actually is a, a pretty decent recipe for a career in public service. Um, I was that nerdy kid uh, that would watch C-SPAN for fun uh, when I was growing up. I know that makes me <laughs> weird. Uh, my classmates certainly informed me as such uh, uh, back then. Um, but you know, I, I just sort of fell into community service and to public service, started volunteering on campaigns uh, at a very young age, and uh, just found my way to a lifetime in serving my hometown, which I, I feel honored to do. Um, I worked for a, a long a number of years for our county of San Diego and the Health and Human Services Agency, uh, served on our housing commission, uh, ran Congresswoman Susan Davis's San Diego office, and did two terms on the city council, two, two years as council president, eight months as interim mayor, and now um, finishing up my second term in the California State Assembly. And you're running for mayor for San Diego again. Oh, yeah, there's, there's that too. <laughs> there's that too. Are we going to have an election? We absolutely will have an election. Yeah, I think okay. it would be a bit different. It is possible that it might be all mm -hmm. mail-in ballot. Um, right. 
But uh, we we will have an election. We have to have an election. We are a democracy. We must do that. We have to have an election in, in November. You're right. So I suppose when you get into public service, you understand that there a time might come where there's some kind of a public crisis. But wow, I mean, I don't think anybody was ready for this. What's it like in Sacramento right now? Are you able to work in Sacramento? Or are you working from home? Give us some insight into how that is. Uh, so these are unusual times. You know, the legislature uh, went into recess uh, in mid-March after passing a $1.1 billion response package for the state's efforts to, to deal with COVID-19. Uh, and then we all returned to our districts uh, and just went back to Sacramento uh, this past Monday for the, the first time in seven weeks and uh, came back to San Diego uh, last night. Uh, assembly has resumed meeting. We had committee hearings this week. We're presenting and considering and voting on bills at this point, but it's a very different experience, Bob. We uh, uh, are not permitted to have staff with us in the hearing rooms. Uh, the public is generally participating remotely. Uh, we are all practicing social distancing, wearing masks, uh, spaced far apart. Um, it's just a surreal experience. And so I was actually excited to go back to work on Monday, um, just you know, I think we all are craving some normalcy. Uh, but upon getting there, I realized, you know, this really is far from what, what is normal and what we uh, experience typically as, as a state assembly. Um, but that said, the, as we just mentioned, this is a democracy. It requires a legislative branch to function and to work. Uh, and there's a lot of work that must be done, everything from our state budget uh, to new legislation, to modified legislation, uh, to just oversight of this response effort. So I'm glad that we went back. Um, I'm also glad to be back in San Diego uh, today. Right. Yeah, I'm sure it's got to be different, but a lot of smart people gathering there. So I'm sure you'll figure out how to keep our keep our state running well. Hey, I think you know a little bit about me. I, I'm uh, in the housing market myself. I run a property management business in North County. And in December, I was watching the 60 Minutes episode. You've maybe heard about it. And it was about the housing and homeless crisis, specifically in Seattle. And I literally was just overwhelmed by that episode. And I started thinking about it. It just seems like there's so many similarities to San Diego. So do you see a comparison to what's going on in Seattle and our housing crisis that we're having here in San Diego? Well, I think both situations uh, are comparable in the sense that they're both are unacceptable, right? That uh, the level of on-street homelessness in both communities, there's a major frustration uh, to- Other cities too, right? I mean, I'm, yeah. I know you're probably up in the in Northern California a lot. You've got to see a lot of that up there as well. Well, even in Sacramento, you know, which yeah. is seen as being relatively affordable and in, in, uh, in a mid-sized city, but they have a substantial homelessness crisis there. And it really impacts every community. Uh, I too saw the 60 Minutes piece on Seattle. I thought it did an exceptional job of of dealing with issues that I've worked on my entire career, you know, from homelessness to housing affordability to income inequality uh, to just the the, the beating uh, that working and middle class Americans have dealt with over the last number of years. It was all a display. Uh, happened to be in Seattle. But, you know, many of those stories are comparable here in San Diego. Uh, I remember in that Seattle piece, you had uh, a, a young couple that was, I believe, living in their car or living in a tent. Plenty of that here. Uh, lots of issues, addiction and mental illness. Uh, that is also true here. Um, but I think broadly speaking, what you have is a situation where I think there was in that piece uh, was a, a letter carrier, um, if I remember correctly. In, yeah, in that U.S. postal worker. Sure. Um, and who was homeless. And mm -hmm. you know, I, I, when I saw that piece, um, you know, I think back to the relationship that we had with our letter carrier when I was a boy. Uh, we had the same letter carrier for years and years. We knew him well. Same. We'd sit out front, wait for him to walk up, right? They did it by foot at the time. Yeah, exactly. And and thinking about what that was 30 years ago to where it is now, where I'm certain that our letter carrier back then was able to probably own a home and provide for his family very uh, uh, sufficiently. Clearly, the woman in the 60 Minutes piece in 2019 
was not doing the same thing. And um, I think it speaks to a host of issues. It's a very complex, uh, tangled up um, series of public policy issues, Uh, but uh, it it needs addressing. Seattle, uh, in San Diego, uh, in California, and across the nation. So it's been a little frantic here over the past couple months with the COVID-19 pandemic. And I have to believe that that's had an impact on homelessness, right? Can you tell us much about that? And what is, if you want to use San Diego as a backdrop or the state of California, what specifically in response to COVID-19 is California or the city of San Diego doing in response? Well, I think there's some good news and bad news here. I mean, good news is, is that, Bob, you know, someone who's worked in this area for a very, very long time. You know, what we have done over the last two months is stuff that I think a lot of us had hoped for or kind of dreamt about being able to bring this level of attention and priority to our unsheltered population. And we're doing it now because of COVID-19. And what I mean by that is the hundreds of hotel and motel rooms that have been procured uh, to house many of our homeless folks who are vulnerable to or exhibiting symptoms of COVID-19, to the repurposing of our convention center on a temporary basis to a homeless shelter, uh, housing not quite a thousand of our unsheltered here in San Diego County. So we are bringing a tremendous amount of resource, a lot of effort, a lot of collaboration that candidly, I think has not always been the hallmark of the work. And creativity and innovation, right? I mean, some of the things we're doing, it just shows we can do it. Bingo. And so, you know, I hate that it takes a pandemic to make this happen. And I certainly uh, don't think that this is a a like for like exchange, but um, this is something that we can be proud of and shows that with the right leadership and the right focus, um, uh, that we can, we can do a lot. Um, I think that the challenge is, is that when this emergency is over, uh, the temptation to go back to status quo, where essentially we were back in March 1st, um, is not going to be possible in my mind. We can't do that. We can't uh, in, declare victory over COVID-19 and then shuffle all those homeless people who are in the convention center out onto Harbor Drive and wish them luck. We have to come up with more creative ways to do that. And I, and I am seeing evidence of that happening. Uh, the flip side of all this positivity, to the extent that it's positive, um, is the fact that understandably COVID-19 is our top priority. Uh, The public health response, as well as the economic recovery efforts, um, have to take center stage. And this is interesting because you may know that this year, the governor's state of the state address was focused entirely on homelessness. Every bit of it was about the homelessness crisis, which is unusual. Um, And so that level of focus was there just back uh, in January. Fast forward to today, you know, the agenda has changed a bit. And I think our challenge is to make sure that people remember that we had a homelessness and housing crisis before COVID-19. It's going on even as we speak now, and it may be substantially worse afterward. Uh, And so we have to be able to multitask and make sure that we don't just focus um, uh, on the public health response and the economic response, but that we continue to make progress on housing and homelessness issues. Well, that's right. And and with the unemployment rate and the financial crisis, you're exactly right. You might see an increase in homelessness after the pandemic is actually over because, I mean, the economy is not just going to be a light switch that turns right back on, right? It's more like a, I hear the analogy to a dimmer switch. It's going to come back on slowly. Yeah. Well, and you've identified something that's preoccupying a lot of my mind. Um, I think uh, the state and localities, uh, took appropriate action by issuing an eviction moratorium. Um, but you know the details of that is not that the rent has been forgiven, it's just that it's been delayed. And uh, you know some of those uh, executive orders end at the end of this month. 
Uh, so you may have a situation and you're in property management, you'd know better than I, how many folks are, are actually making the rent, uh, all or part, you know, those bills will come due. And, you know, I, I'm fearful that many can't do that. Um, and that, as you say, um, a lot of these folks will be pushed out onto the street. Uh, it also is impossible that some of these landlords, you know, may not be able to make their mortgage and that could, uh, create a new foreclosure crisis that we uh, would have tremendous impacts on housing affordability. So we're in a precarious position uh, and I am uh, advocating along with our governor and others to ask for the federal government to take decisive action on housing in a future uh, relief package. They've passed now four bills to address COVID-19, everything from the CARES Act, a multi-trillion dollar effort uh, to uh, replenishing the Small Business uh, pay, uh, Paycheck Protection Act. Then I think a future bill has to consider housing uh, uh, and understanding how we address uh, this concern of, of making sure that we don't substantially add to the ranks of housing insecure or homeless people in the United States. Wow, that's very interesting. What would that look like if you had a chance to give input to, you know, President Trump, you know, some sort of federal stimulus or whatever you want to call it, protection, what would it look like? Well, you know, I've been talking to smart people to try and help me make sure that I'm articulating this um, wisely. I, I think that my initial reaction, Bob, is that um, what we have to do is have a direct relationship either with the tenant or with the landlord. I think one of the things I've learned in the two months uh, since this has all begun is that uh, the creation of new programs uh, from whole cloth actually adds to the wait times for servicing. I'm thinking specifically of pandemic unemployment assistance a new unemployment uh, insurance-like policy for self-employed and independent contractors. Uh, for many of your listeners, they may have applied for that. In fact, about a half a million in California now have. Right. But it took a month to stand that thing up. Um, and you know, a month in the world of rents and mortgages is meaningful, right? And so uh, I think I would, what I would advocate for beyond just actually doing something about this issue would be to, to do it fairly decisively and fairly swiftly, um, particularly acknowledging in this particular case, you could be talking about something that may be a few weeks or a few months from now, uh, at which point the acuity of this crisis, the number of unpaid rent bills, the un a number of unpaid mortgage bills uh, could be several months uh, worth and waiting additional month or two or three or four uh, for state or local governments to stand up a new administration, a new bureaucracy, um, that makes me fearful that the people we're trying to help uh, may actually fall into uh, the homelessness and housing insecurity that we're specifically trying to fight against. So, um, you know, there's 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 a lot of different ways that this can be handled. You could you could ramp up uh, uh, housing choice vouchers. You could do direct uh, contributions to. Uh, uh, state housing agencies, but ultimately that money needs to get in the hands of either the landlord or the tenant um, and and make sure that we're not adding to the ranks of homelessness in California. And again, this is not just a California issue. There are plenty of communities across the United States that have passed these eviction moratoriums. And again, I think that was the right thing to do given the circumstances. We just have to make sure that the back end of this thing is equally considered as it was at the beginning of this crisis. Well, I'm glad we have people like you that are thinking about this kind of stuff because there is a ripple effect that could go down through, like, like you mentioned, the tenant, the landlord, the homeowner, and their, you know, and everybody has their own financial obligations throughout that chain. Yeah, that's right. I read an article you wrote in the San Diego Union, I think it was a couple of years ago, and you had cited that the Department of Housing and Community Development, uh, a, a study that said that we build about 80,000 homes on average per year. Maybe that's changed now. That was a couple of years ago, but that's far below what we need, which is about 180,000 180, homes needed each year just to keep up with our growth. And uh, what is that still an issue? or what's been done in the meantime about that? 
No, that is very much still an issue. And it'll be interesting to see uh, how COVID-19 impacts that. Obviously, uh, California has de- declared uh, construction to be an essential service. So, you know, those that work has continued despite the, uh, the stay-at-home order. But that said, um, obviously, with the uncertainty in the markets um, and, uh, you know, other uncertainty in, um, in, in our economy, um, you know, it's, I think this will have a, a negative impact. Um, I think the what I saw from terms of data earlier in the year is that we were actually going downward in terms of our housing production, despite a lot of effort mm-hmm. uh, to try and ramp up production. But for your listeners, I think it is broadly, uh, the, you know, numbers may fluctuate year to year, but we're basically building half the amount of housing that we need for population growth. And I just because I can hear some of their comments already, the population growth we're talking about is our children and our grandchildren. You know, the inward migration um, is not what it used to be to California. And so uh, before anyone says, you know, I just put up, you know, close the door, don't let any more folks here, locals only. Um, we're talking about our kids. And I guess that's the focus, certainly of my mayoral campaign is as a hometown boy who um, is delighted to be able to live in his hometown and can serve and contribute to his community. You know, I know that for a lot of our young people, they grow up here, we subsidize their education, we invest in them, and then we show them the door because we don't create a space for them to be able to live here. They can't foresee being able to buy a home in their hometown, uh, raise a family, build wealth. And as a consequence, other communities get to benefit from our investments in them and their knowledge and their education and their workers and their skill sets. Um, and that is not a recipe for economic growth. Uh, and so we have to be able to uh, ramp up housing production, uh, not for a lot of foreign investors and those folks, I'm not concerned so much about them. I'm concerned about the kids who are in our high schools and our colleges today um, who wonder whether or not there's going to be a place for them in California. I want to expressly say there is one. We need to make space for them um, and that our uh, economic uh, fortunes uh, depend on doing so. Yeah, we need to figure out how to make that happen. I have four kids from uh, between 15 and into their early 30s. And, you know, they're all facing this. Like, how do I how do I get my starter home? I had read on Realtor.com, and I don't know if it's specific to California, that uh, the starter home segment shrinks by 17% a year, you know, because there's this still discrepancy between um, salaries not keeping up the price of housing. So, it's all pretty complicated, far from simple, and solutions won't be found in any one assembly bill or act. But you've championed some state bills the last two years to work on the housing crisis. One of those, I think, is called the CASA Act yeah. or AB 2372 in 2018. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Um, this was legislation that I did um, in partnership with Council President George Ed Gomez, um, our uh, San Diego County uh, Chamber of Commerce uh, and San Diego's mayor. Uh, and we all kind of uh, work together to say, what is it we can do to build more housing that is priced affordably for working and middle-class Californians? Um, uh, you know, the, 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 the you, you cited a number of, of data points. Uh, one that I like to point to is the city recently, not recently, about a year ago, issued a report looking at its housing productions or permits that were issued over the last 10 years. And over that 10-year period, Roughly uh, 4,400 homes were created uh, at the low and very low income part of our market. Uh, there were about 27,000 at the upper income levels, at the luxury end. Uh, and there were 33 homes that were permitted 
for the middle class in San Diego, in the city of San Diego, over a 10-year period. Wow. And so when you see that sort of barbell, if you will, and I, this is where I need to point out 4,400 homes for low-income people is not enough. It's not nearly enough for demand, but it's certainly a lot more than the 33 that was done for the middle class. You had, the problem that we're identifying is that we're simply not building enough homes at that price point of the market. And so the CASA Act is to use an incentive-based method, so no uh, no tax direct taxpayer monetary subsidy, uh, to really incentivize the production of homes in that middle section, things that would be naturally affordable for working people. And so that bill was adopted. Um, it is uh, currently being implemented in the city of San Diego in what they're calling the Complete Communities uh, uh, initiative. And I believe that's going before the city council fairly soon, but my bill authorizes that effort. The city is working on that understandable, given the leadership of both the mayor and the council president. What we have to do, Bob, is to make sure that other cities are doing the same thing, because while San Diego has an acute housing crisis, there's a housing crisis that is across the state, right? And every community has to do its fair share. It is not enough for San Diego to be aggressive and increasing housing production every community has to uh, to ramp up its production too if we hope to solve this problem in California. So I think then in 2019, you championed an $8 billion housing package also in California, again, targeting working and middle-class Californians. I think there are a number of different assembly bills within that total package um, that might be exhaustive to discuss in particular or specifically, but maybe you could just give us a summary of what that entailed, what it was intended to do, and you know how are we doing in implementation? So you know, it was a legislative strategy amongst my colleagues and I to basically take our individual bills that all sort of speak to the same issue and put them together as a housing package and then try and work on it systematically. As you mentioned exactly right, one bill is not going to solve the entirety of this problem. Multiple bills will not solve the entirety of the problem, but you know, there's strength in numbers. And uh, I'll tell you that you know it was a mixed outcome. Uh, there were bills that passed. Um, Senate Bill 330, uh, which is a part of that, which basically provides um, certainty of uh, certainty of billing in this. You know, for any of your listeners who have gone to apply for a permit, uh, what they may know when they get in the queue for the permit is the permit may cost uh, a certain amount of money. And then by the time they actually get to the counter, the, the price may have changed. And um, I kind of uh, liken it to if you got in line at Starbucks and the coffee was $2 when you got in line, but it was $4 by the time you got to the counter to pay, um, that level of uncertainty actually creates problems in the development process. And- or perhaps the building codes and the, the um, you know, <laughs> right? The, the requirements to get that building permit may have changed as well. So what Senate Bill 330 says is, okay, whatever, it has to stay the same throughout the process that you can't uh, move the goalposts, if you will. It's a modest, relatively modest effort, but Bob, I'll tell you, it was a fairly controversial bill. Um, and, you know, actually within the context of the mayor's campaign, you know, there have been criticisms of my support for that bill. Um, I just sort of stand by the notion that none of us would accept or tolerate a business charging us a different price just in the length of time that we were waiting for, for service. Uh, I don't know why a city should be able to get away with that. And so um, that was something that was successful. What, what One of the bills that wasn't successful was Senate Bill 5, which would have reestablished a form of redevelopment in California. Uh, your listeners may remember that we eliminated redevelopment during the last recession in California, and that has been um, a, to the detriment of affordable housing production uh, in our state because that was the primary funding source for many of these projects that work for low-income uh, and formerly homeless individuals. SB5 was an attempt to resurrect that, not as it was. You know, we're trying to avoid the excesses of the past and the mistakes that others have made in terms of using that resource for 
say sports stadiums and things of that nature, but to really focus it on housing production and neighborhood infrastructure. That bill was passed by the legislature, but the governor uh, vetoed it. And so uh, those are just two of the bills that are part of the package. And I think a, 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 a reasonable reflection of some progress, uh, some uh, lack of progress, uh, and a need to come right back again and introduce more bills. Um, I have, I think at this point, uh, two or three bills in this space this year. And it's, again, sort of focused on that middle section of our economy, making sure that working people, guys and gals who get up every day and go to work, play by the rules, but don't see a future for themselves in California, these bills are intended to create housing for them. Uh, and my hope is that we'll get it through this legislative year. Uh, the, the hesitation you hear in my voice is the fact that because we were in recess for seven weeks, uh, right. our legislative process is going to be much more truncated. Uh, we are all being asked to reduce our bill packages uh, to offer fewer bills. But I stand by my comment that housing uh, was a crisis before this pandemic. It will be one afterward. And we need to continue to endeavor uh, to do the work of addressing housing affordability probably now more than ever. Is the objective of some of these assembly bills to sort of decrease the number of obstacles that are there to build housing? In other words, kind of accelerate the rate of building housing that's affordable for people like you've mentioned? I think it's, uh, you know, there's there's a certainty of process. I mean, it isn't that um, anyone should be able to do anything. And in fact, I want to be explicit in saying that, you know, I don't support building anything anywhere. Right. Um, putting a bunch of McMansions out in the backcountry uh, that would undermine our climate goals of reducing greenhouse gas emissions and vehicle miles traveled, as well as uh, increase the uh, the risk associated with wildfires. Uh, we don't need more of that housing. We also need, don't, we don't need a lot of uh, luxury condos along the waterfront, right? That's the most expensive form of housing. What we have to have is this housing, again, that is priced for working people, the kinds of stuff that probably you and I were raised mm -hmm. in, you know, the, the home that I grew up in was probably 1100 square feet, right? Uh, and it was enough for four people, for my parents, my brother and I. Um, we need to get back to that kind of housing. And so the bills that I like to author um, really uh, sort of create a certainty of process, not removing um, all uh, uh, oversight or checkpoints to make sure these are projects that are community um, enhancing. But it is to say that um, to, to be permissive and say, yes, you may propose this. Um, I think one of my observations is that there's not been a lot of innovation in the housing sector uh, in terms of how we make housing. Right. And, uh, you know, the, even how we're talking right now is an innovation that was not possible just a yeah, few years ago. Yeah. Right. You see innovation in every corner of our economy, and yet it isn't necessarily here, despite the fact that we have more need than ever. And so um, if you can uh, create um, homes that are slightly smaller and maybe not normally permitted, but could be considered now because of a bill that I wrote um, and because it's slightly smaller, it actually ends up being cheaper. That's the kind of stuff that I think is meaningful. And additionally, providing certainty of process and saying uh, that this uh, particular effort uh, or this particular permit, can the fees will stay the same, the rules won't change. That kind of stuff um, provides uh, the willingness for those who want to work in this industry, the ability to say, I'm more likely than not to be successful in getting to my finish line. And as a consequence, make the investment, build the home that a family can later move sure. into. That's uh, really, really good stuff and very insightful. Um, I'd like to shift a bit to San Diego. So I've you know studied up on your campaign a little bit, and I even read one of your pamphlets. I thought it was very well done. Tackling our housing crisis was on your website. So I downloaded it and I read it. And you have this vision to put a roof over every person's head at a price they can afford. I mean, that's a very ambitious plan, of course. And um, I know it's a complex issue, but what will we need to do as a San Diego community to see that vision become reality? Well, it's going to be a lot of hard work. And yes, it is a lofty goal, but I think leaders have to set those goals and work aggressively to reach them. Um, and it, again, it goes back to your kids, uh, to my nieces and nephews, um, that 
you know, there has to be a place for them. And so that means that we have to uh, increase the amount of homes that we are producing in our community. Again, not building anything anywhere, but focusing the kind of housing product near existing infrastructure and jobs. Uh, and how do we do that? Uh, well, first off, you have to have a leader that says this is a problem, right? And sometimes... Yeah, and, and, a, and a priority. In a part, exactly. You know, and, and that's been something of a key difference in this campaign um, where, you know, I've been very clear in saying, I believe our housing crisis um, is the most significant issue. I, I believe that homelessness is an expression of our housing crisis. Um, but I, while we talk often about the 7,000 or so unsheltered people in our county, my mind is often on the hundreds of thousands, if not more than a million families who are housing insecure and who don't know if they're going to be able to make it here. Those are the people who are not seen because they're not laying out on a sidewalk or in a canyon, uh, but they are equally victims of this housing crisis. And so what I'm trying to lift up is they, we can do more and we should do more. So there's that leadership piece. And then you operationalize that by doing things like um, running the development services department in a customer service oriented way, making sure that we are holding people accountable, giving them objectives and goals and, and managing them to meet those goals. Uh, that we're passing, uh, that we're appropriating our limited taxpayer dollars to do things like update community plans, uh, which provide that certainty of process because it creates a consensus from the community and from the development industry about what goes where and how that ought to look. And that certainty of process, again, helps to speed production. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and then I think just it is going to be incumbent upon the next mayor and really any mayor, because this is a national problem. There are housing crises across the nation. But on any mayor to say, this is the issue. I'm going to commit to working hard on it. And again, my career as starting as a housing commissioner to my service as the chair of the housing committee at the city, uh, to my service on the housing committee in, in Sacramento now, um, I believe I have the wealth of experience and background to be able to make transformational change on this issue if elected mayor. So you have a lot of good ideas that are around infrastructure, making the process of building, I think, more simple. I'm kind of I'm kind of paraphrasing some of your ideas, ideas. Housing and land trust, a lot of really creative thinking. Is there another side of this equation though? There's there's the side of of what government can do, of what San Diego can do, infrastructure. What about income inequality? That's another side of the equation that's a little bit tougher to solve. It is. Um, and the the market forces on that are certainly at a, a a higher level than the municipal level, right? Um, I have tried to do what I could uh, and can do um, at both the local and state level uh, in addressing this. Uh, you may recall that um, I authored the city's minimum wage and paid sick days ordinance back in 2014. Um, that was ratified by the voters in 2016 um, to increase the minimum wage uh, as well as pay provide paid sick days, which you know I think today we understand the value of those paid sick days now more than ever. Um, and then at the state level, you know, working to expand our earned income, earned income tax credit uh, to reduce tax bills for working Californians to really incentivize work uh, to give them a fighting chance to live in this state. So um, I acknowledge and, and recognize that it's you know on both sides of the ledger, both the income that's coming in, the expenses in a, uh, that a family uh, has to, to pay. Acknowledging that housing is always or almost often always the highest cost that any family endures. Um, but, and, and, you know, what can a mayor do about that? Well, you know, again, you could do ordinances like the ones that I've done and champion the things that I've done. Um, it can also be about making sure that we are, um, you know, recruiting the businesses and retaining the businesses that pay better wages and, you know, encouraging companies to, to do right by their workers. Um, you know, it is, it is a 360 degree effort, right? You can work on housing production, you can work on, on income, uh, uh, improvements. Um, it, it requires a full-throated uh, effort. And 
Um, I, I've tried to do that in my time in public service. Absolutely. And um, one of the other aspects I think you support are rent caps or some form of rent protection, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. In 2019, there was the Tenant Protection Act, AB 1482. Do we need to take that further or does 1482 pretty much cover what what you're talking about in your pamphlet. I think 1482 um, is is good legislation. Um, I, I just have I do see a distinction between it and rent control, um, which is something that I've historic not for it. Um, this is really about anti-rent gouging. Um, and I think about uh, an apartment building uh, that is just outside of my assembly district that saw a 75% rent increase when nothing was done to the property. There were no improvements. There was nothing done. It was just a unilateral major increase. Uh, in, and it's that kind of behavior. This is an old building um, that I think the state acknowledged appropriately doesn't, doesn't, does not helping the cause. Um, in terms of what we need to do, I think uh, one of my chief criticisms um, about my time in Sacramento is that we're really good at passing legislation. I don't feel that we always do a great job on oversight after the fact. How is that implemented? And to the extent that cities are permitted to enforce uh, AB 1482, I think that that's what uh, the future should hold for making sure those tenant protections are implemented correctly. It is now state law. Tenants have these rights, but I think we always know um, that uh, landlord-tenant disputes are difficult and, and, and cumbersome. Um, you know, the, the city uh, does do some of that work now. I want to make sure that we implement that correctly. I think the other thing that was attractive to me about 1482, which is unlike rent control, um, is that it's statewide in its scope. Um, it means to say that, um, you know, you don't have uh, uh, d- distinctions or differences between, say, La Mesa and San Diego, despite being, you know, next to each other. And that sort of uniformity of process creates a fairness uh, for landlords uh, that wouldn't they wouldn't experience otherwise. So I think we're in a good place from a policy perspective. I think it's all about implementation now, uh, and the city may have a role in doing that. I launched this podcast a couple of years ago. One of my very first guests, I don't know if you know Dwight Warden. He's, yeah. he's on the city council in Del Mar. He happens to be my next door neighbor, too, by the way. And, oh, we yeah, he says hello, by the way. Uh, I see our dogs are really good friends. They bark at each other in the driveway. Anyway, he was on the show and specifically we were talking about short-term rentals in Del Mar, uh, otherwise known as vacation rentals. And I know you've got some concerns about this in San Diego and what it might be doing to our community housing stock. I would love to get your response to this. I, I asked Dwight the same question and that is, has there ever been a more perhaps emotionally charged issue than this one, you know, facing San Diego? Um, you know, it's funny you ask that because I sat through multiple hearings on this issue when I was on the city council. And I think the only ones that actually lasted longer, meaning to say there was more public testimony, and I could be wrong. You can go back and check this if you like, but I think La Jolla Seals uh, and medical marijuana may have had longer hearings, but it's certainly in the top three, uh, if they're not the number one. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a complex issue. Um, you know, there's uh, private property rights uh, coupled with neighborhood character and impacts to affordable housing. Um, and I guess uh, I think I, I, my frustration in this is that the city is really an outlier at this point where it has not regulated uh, this use. Um, and that's regrettable. Uh, when I was on the city council, I managed to pass two motions of the council directing the mayor to bring the council an ordinance to regulate vacation rentals. Both of those motions were ignored. Um, now you have a situation where the city council adopted an ordinance that was referendized um, and no action has been taken since that referendum, um, despite the fact the city council could today pass something if they wanted to. 
Um, that lack of forward progress is creating uncertainty in the market, both if you're a neighbor uh, that is dealing with a nuisance or a, a misbehaving uh, host or uh, a property owner who relies on that rental income from uh, from home sharing to make your mortgage. I think that the city's leaders uh, owe it to the people of the city to provide some rules of the road when it comes to this. I certainly support regulating uh, short-term vacation rentals and making sure that the revenue that we receive from this is invested into a robust code, code compliance effort to make sure that bad actors are weeded out uh, and that uh, we get some certainty on this. I, um, I've seen this before, Bob. When I was elected to the city council in 2008, um, we had, um, oh, I think, nearly 200 uh, marijuana dispensaries in the city. Um, California voters had approved compassionate use in 1996. And in 2008, the city had still not adopted any regulations around uh, the sale of cannabis uh, in our community. And it created a Wild West situation that nobody was happy with. Um, I wrote the city's ordinance on retail sales of cannabis, uh, and that has uh, created more control and, and enforcement regulation. Um, and the kinds of problems that we were seeing back in the 2000s, we don't see today uh, in this industry. So I think that much like in that case, inertia by city leaders has really exacerbated the problem. I think that's true for vacation rentals. And that could end tomorrow um, if city leaders chose to do it. If they don't choose to do it, and I've been honored to be elected mayor of San Diego, uh, I will commit to making sure that we regulate short-term vacation rentals and provide certainty of process in this situation. So in Del Mar, they, the city council actually came up with kind of a compromise, which personally I thought was very reasonable. And then the Coastal Commission got involved. Right. And so the Coastal Commission's objection was, I, I suppose, access to our beaches. If I'm getting that right, maybe you have another opinion on that. Is that going to be an issue for the city of San Diego as well? Is the Coastal Commission ultimately going to get involved in this decision? Yes, they have legal jurisdiction over the neighborhoods west of I-5, which, you know, interestingly enough, are the ones where this uh, issue is probably the hottest. Um, and uh, yeah, it, whatever the city council uh ultimately adopts uh, would have to be blessed by uh, the Coastal Commission. And so we're going to have to factor that into our consideration. Um, and yeah, I think the experiences of Del Mar and other coastal communities up and down the state uh, inform what the Coastal Commission will be willing uh, to accept. Um, I'm hopeful that in my experiences at the state level, uh, as a representative of one of the coastal districts in the, uh, in the state legislature, I have had uh, plenty of opportunities to work with the Coastal Commission, uh, that I can take that experience and those relationships to deliver again, uh, sensible regulations to provide relief to those who are dealing with nuisance properties and certainty for those who are really counting on that income in order to, to, uh, to make their mortgage. Let's shift topics a little bit. The city of San Diego is in kind of a budget crisis of its own, right? I don't know the exact number, but I had heard that we may come out 477 million shy of last year's budget, a reduction of about 10%. So this has got to be one of your top concerns if elected mayor. Some some things are going to get cut. So something's going to have to give. So what's your impression of that? And you know, do you have any influence on the budget in advance of the election? I, I wish that I did, but you know, you and I know <laughs> yeah. the same things because we're both for, for this purpose, you know, just citizens that read what we read in the paper. And um, you know, I the the, the budget situation is pretty dire, both at the city and at the state level. Um, and we're going to have to deal with that because both of us are uh, required by law to have balanced budgets. So, you know, we can't run deficits like the federal level. And so you have to sort it out. Bob, I think in this particular case, uh, my experience uh, is a value add. Um, when I was elected to city council uh, back in 2008, we were in the Great Recession. Uh, and the city at that time was facing a nine-figure 
budget deficits. I mean, it was a significant situation. It was very terrible. Um, but what we did was work uh, through it. And by the time I left uh, City Hall in 2016, we had a balanced budget with a modest surplus and with growing reserves. Reserves, by the way, that will be uh, critical to helping to uh, mitigate some of the reductions that will be necessary as we deal with the COVID-19 recession. Um, so I guess it's a way of saying, you know, I've seen uh, tough budgets before. Uh, I was as chair of the budget committee for six years when I was on the city council. So I know my way around this issue. You do. Yeah. And what I would just say is that what we have to do is to be extremely smart, uh, work closely with stakeholders, particularly our employees, uh, to find cost savings wherever they can be found, to protect core services, particularly public health and public safety during this time, uh, and live to, to, to fight another day. I mean, we will get through this. There's no question that we will. I, you know, we will uh, survive. Um, the question is, what kind of city will we be in and what will that look like going through this? And again, my focus would be on working in a collaborative way to minimize the impacts to, to citizens and to residents uh, and to make sure that when we come out of the back of this, we're stronger than we were before. Again, we did that with the Great Recession. Um, I hope that we can do it with the COVID-19 recession. Todd, if you're elected mayor, you'd be the first openly LGBTQ ever in San Diego. And what did you think of Pete Buttigieg and his run for president? Maybe this is something you get asked a lot. And if it is, I'm sorry. But I just would like to get your impression. I mean, was, was that run at presidency inspiring what you saw Mayor Pete do? Uh, it was. And if I may, Bob, I also want to point out, I'd be the first person of color elected mayor of San Diego. Wow. Which should be equally astounding uh, to your to your listeners that yes. a city like ours um, has yet to make that particular uh, uh, break that particular barrier. That is astounding. Um, but you know we got a chance in November, guys. Um, so to, with regard to Mayor Pete, um, you know I think back and uh, quick personal story, if I may. Um, when I was in my intro to poli sci class uh, in my senior year in high school, um, I remember our teacher. Uh, he was kind of an unusual fellow and he was giving a lecture and he said uh, that there are two things that you could not be if you wanted to be a politician or elected official. And the first thing was gay. And the second thing to this day, I can't remember what it was because I was so astounded, even in the early 1990s, that he would say that. It just seemed inappropriate then. Um, and for someone who is as a proud American and who we are all raised that you can be and do whatever you want in this country if you're willing to work hard, um, that, was a, that was, a, was a gut punch. That was a body blow. But here's the thing. I had already volunteered on a woman named Christine Kehoe's campaign for city council. And she had just been elected uh, to the city council successfully, proving the teacher wrong. And so I think about what Mayor Pete means for millions of young kids across this country who, while he was unsuccessful, he ran an outstanding campaign, uh, was a credible, polished, uh, a very successful. Guy is so smart. Unbelievably smart, right? It goes back to that sort of that, um, that, that saying, you can't, if you haven't seen it, you can't be it. Well, now folks have seen it, and it may not be Mayor Pete who broke that barrier, but someone will. And it will be because, um, like Chris Kehoe, before her, there was a guy named Al Best who was the first to run for office in San Diego as an openly gay man. He did it in the 1970s. Uh, he lost his job. His house was vandalized. He was ultimately not successful in his race. Wow. But then about 20 years later, Chris Keogh came along. And then fast forward to today, where there's a number of uh, openly LGBT uh, elected officials in San Diego County. In fact, there are more here than there are in San Francisco, if that tells you anything. Um, I think about the seeds that Mayor Pete planted in this, uh, uh, this election year 
And I have no doubt that going forward that this will continue to grow because those young people who, like when I was a young kid sitting in front of the TV watching C-SPAN, gets inspired, gets, uh, is told you could do this if you, do the, if you work hard enough, and they will do it. And that will, we'll all be better because of it. Yeah. And I think uh, more women in politics, um, openly gay people in politics, more and more people of color. It's very inspiring. You know, and so I, I'm inspired by what, what you're doing and what Mayor Pete did. And I, I, I think it's fantastic. Hey, Todd, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show today. I know you're incredibly busy and thank you so much for coming in during the COVID. I would love to continue, but in the interest of time, we need to wrap up the episode today. So any last words or thoughts for our audience or maybe a, you know, plug for your mayor candidacy? <laughs> well, I appreciate First off, thanks for this opportunity. I could talk about housing all day long. It is- I could too. Yeah. So in the interest of time though, we got to move forward. Yeah. We're both passionate about this subject. And I hope that that passion is infectious um, and that more people take up this battle of, of dealing with this issue because I see it as critical and core to the success of our community, uh, of our economy. Um, and uh, so I appreciate this chance to talk. And, and then on, with regard to the mayor thing, if folks want more information, I would just say go to toddglory.com. But my, 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 my closing thing would be to say that, you know, uh, while we talked about first, right, the first openly LGBT or the first a person of color elected elected mayor. You may remember I did serve as mayor for a while. Uh, you did, yeah. I, I like to remind people I did it for eight months. I'm now asking for the opportunity to do it for eight years. Um, and I hope that folks will give me that opportunity and allow us to, again, bring transformational change to the issue of housing and homelessness in our community. Um, I appreciate your time. Well, I already told you I live in Del Mar. I can't vote. <laughs> but if I could, you'd have my vote. Thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And best of luck in your campaign. Thank you, Bob. Okay, Todd. As we wrap up today, I'd like to make another quick plug to our listeners to click on the subscribe button and give us a like. Also, please pay it forward with a positive review to help encourage more guests like Assemblymember Gloria to come on our show. That concludes today's episode. Thank you for joining the Property Management Brainstorm show. Until next time, we will be in the field working hard for our clients to keep their properties managed well and maintain top tenant relations. We'll catch you next time.